0: So I do all this work to try and set up some sort of background and then I put my mic in the frame and it covers the stuff I set up. So <laughs> I guess we're going to have to have to figure something else out with that. But with that said, hello and welcome in everyone to this week's episode of lapping the field. I am your host Eric Beck and We are going to jump right in as we typically do to the Cup Series Results Cup Series goings on from this past weekend, which is a recap of what happened in Talladega. Now, I had been hoping, I had really been hoping to be able to Wear either my Matt Benedetto shirt or my Bubba Wallace shirt in celebration of another first-time winner. Both of those guys being able to win their first stages of their career. Both, Well, Matt Benedetto at least being around at the end to potentially win the race leading at the white flag, but it, alas, was not meant to be. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. We're going to go ahead and jump back to the beginning of the Talladega race to discuss some things. We're going to be mainly hitting, uh, again, we're just going to be mainly hitting highlights from things that happened during the race. We're not going to go for a lap-by-lap recap like we tried doing at different points in the original uh, first couple episodes of this series, this podcast series. And I'm going to, for those of you watching on the YouTube channel attempt to get this mic a little closer to my face and completely block out the background, which I set up for myself. Oh, well, moving on to the actual race itself. And the first thing we're going to talk about and we're going to spend some time on is the Joey Logano Airborne Crash. Joey Logano having a blowover wreck in this race in stage one, coming towards the end of stage one. And it is the... I don't remember specifically if this is the first blowover we've had since Ryan Newman had his blowover at uh, at, at Daytona last year at the Daytona 500, so I'm not sure about that. But this is Logano's first rollover blowover accident since Dover way back, I believe, in 2008 or 2009, back when he was still running the Home Depot car for Joe Gibbs. So it has been an extended period of time since Logano himself had a wreck of that nature. And when he got out of the infield care center and went into his TV interview, he had some choice words for the style of racing that is happening right now that has the ability to lead to these rollover, blowover, ending upside down accidents that happen in NASCAR, especially at the super speedways. So I don't have a direct quote. I guess I can find a link, and as I try to talk about this, I will leave a note to myself to put a link to his uh, his interview in the show notes for everyone you are able, if you are able, that is, to go ahead and check that out. Logano interview. There we go. But talking about the crash itself and about rollo- rollover crashes themselves... It is an interesting occurrence that this is still a thing that happens, I guess, in and of itself. Rollovers are fascinating to me just in terms of watching them, because you take a car that weighs like, what is it, somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 pounds, depending on the series that you're running in. And these cars, once they get airborne, they just float like they're nothing, like they're a feather or like they're just like a piece of paper catching the breeze. It's amazing how they just fly. Because you could see it as soon as Logano started taking off, he was gone. He's along for the ride. And at that point, you're just sort of stuck doing, hanging on, I guess. There's not really anything you can do once you're flipping over. One of the interesting things to me is how the the safety features that are implemented in the car right now in an attempt to keep it on the ground we're talking about the roof flaps which have been around for an more for a longer period of time i guess i can't say extended period of time in nascar but definitely for a longer period of time those are things that are put in place on top of the roof in order to help the air basically jam up on top of the car to try and keep an additional downforce basically of on top of the car because once you have car once you have air that is more easily flowing underneath the car than above the car that's when you get flight that's the way airplanes work that's the way flying cars work so you're trying to keep the car on the ground you're trying not to show the bottom of that car to the air as it's go as it's going forward basically as basically turning the air into a ramp to launch the car into the air so you have roof flaps, two different flaps on top of the car at different angles, in order to try as well as possible to keep as much air as possible on top of the car. And now the NASCAR cars also have these basically like roof flaps, or not roof flaps, roof flaps, I guess. In in theory, or the way they sort of operate when you start going into a into an airborne situation, but they're on the hood of the car now. So you have one on either side, on the left side and the right side of the car which I think in part give easier access to being able to work on the engine without necessarily taking the hood off. That's not necessarily the way that they're typically used, but that is a possibility for those things. But they also provide that similar sort of roof flap, keeping the air on top of the car as much as possible function. So those things did deploy in both of these cases. In some some way, I don't know completely what the design looks like, but in some way, once the car starts turning, The air is able to get underneath the flaps themselves, I think, in order to pop those things up. So that is that is a safety feature designed in these cars to help try and keep them on the ground. But once you're in the air, you're along for the ride, and those roof flaps aren't going to do anything for you. You definitely saw, especially in this instance, where as soon as those flaps weren't exposed to the air anymore, they went back down into the car because they're not really going to help you at all to get back down to the ground. At that point, you're waiting for whatever the airflow looks like and for gravity to take control again. So that is the actual coming into or moving into the flip itself but then once you get into the now that we are flipping the way that cars have been designed and the focus on safety that has happened especially in the last 20 years in nascar you're looking at how is the vehicle itself going to best support the driver and keep the driver safest not only while the car is flipping or potentially airborne Or in any accident in general, but also what is going to allow a driver to get out of the vehicle as quickly and safely as possible, which is especially an issue if the vehicle were to catch on fire, which happened to a couple different cars this weekend, but not to in this specific case with the Lugano crash. So... As we saw in the aftermath from that, uh, from the wreck, we saw the in-car footage from Bubba Wallace of him basically driving right underneath Logano's car after it was already back down on the ground on its roof. And then we saw even after that, I don't know if I'll we'll be able to find links to this, but we saw pictures of Logano's car itself and basically the the roll cage itself that bent down like came down off of the ceiling and bent further down and essentially ended up hitting Logano, Joey Logano, it hit him in the head in the helmet as that flip occurred, and as he came back down on his roof when he landed after going airborne. So Logano's comments were all about that why is it that these cars continue to get airborne? Why are we still racing in a style that allows for the cars to do this? And why or I guess continuing to express frustration that, especially in the case of the Ryan Newman accident in the Daytona 500 last year, when many people, including myself, thought that Ryan Newman had no possibility of surviving that accident in the first couple hours between the accident happening and NASCAR announcing that he was still alive, which was amazing in and of itself. NASCAR has done a lot to support the safety of these cars, and I think my, uh, we'll go to my, Background here, if I can, my little mini-me, mini-me Jeff Burton cardboard cutout right there. Jeff Burton was my driver. Jeff Burton was a huge safety advocate as a driver and uh, looked for ways to promote safety advancements in the sport while he was driving. Something I saw him say earlier this week is that he doesn't need to be the person to go to NASCAR and attempt to push NASCAR to take safety more seriously as maybe would have been the case after a wreck like this 25, 30, 40 years ago. NASCAR now takes a more proactive stance as the sport itself to attempt to find ways to keep these cars safer. That said, I think there's still definitely a lot more you can do. So I want to to table that for a moment, and I want to come back to Joey Logano being the person to talk about this. Itself, I guess, as sort of as an issue in and of itself. Because my first reaction to Joey Logano saying these things is that now I have no issue with what was said. I think my issue is more as a fan having that message come from that specific driver. Because I don't know if this is me projecting my personal feelings onto NASCAR fans in general, but I feel like Joey Logano has this way of sort of grading against fans that he isn't necessarily the. Always the good guy sort. He's not also... He's not like the bad guy type. Like if this were professional wrestling, the face versus the heel. But he does has have this way of sort of grading, at least on me personally. And I personally am not really... I can't say that I'm a fan of his as a driver. But with that said, having been a person who was just involved in a rollover accident, he is definitely a person who is able to come forward, especially in the immediate aftermath, and be like, Hey... These are things we need to be focusing on in order to continue to attempt to continue to attempt, that is, to keep the drivers as safe as possible. Because this has been a major focus for NASCAR. NASCAR 20 years ago was already sort of starting to get into developing further safety implementation functions, procedures, instruments, tools, whatever, all of those different things. And then very immediately, very tragically, lost the face of the sport as a competitor. The biggest driver in the sport, Dale Earnhardt, was involved in a fatal accident in the Daytona 500 20 years ago this year. And after that, thankfully, in NASCAR's three major series, there has not been a death since then. Then that is in part because NASCAR has focused so heavily in the aftermath of that accident on pushing safety advancements as far as possible. And while I say as quickly as possible, also doing it with as much quality as possible in terms of a speed versus quality. I guess that's the metaphor there doesn't quite work out. It worked out better in my head, I guess. But the point is that NASCAR is doing everything they can or at least on its as we see how nascar functions they do what they can as quickly as possible but not just putting something in place with the hopes that it will work they actually put effort into understanding what will make these vehicles safer what will make the track safer what will make the racing safer and what will protect the drivers inside the cars and as has been, as has potentially been seen or has been seen in the past what can keep the fans safe as well who are at the track at the same time. And to go along with that, everyone else who is involved in the sport. So there have been a lot of questions now since NASCAR is going to be introducing a new generation of race car next season how much is still to be done or how much can be done in the remaining season that we currently have. We are now 10 races into this and we are two of the four super speedway races into this. So our next super speedway race, if I remember correctly, doesn't happen until I believe the last weekend in August when we go back to Daytona right before the start of the playoffs. It's either it's the end of August, the start of September, right before school gets back in session, I guess, for Those of us who live in states where school starts later, sorry for those of you in the Southeast who start in like the beginning of August, which is absurd, but that's a different point entirely for a completely different podcast. But the question remains, what is NASCAR able to do to try to keep these vehicles on the ground for one, but keep continuing to develop safety in a vehicle that will be going away after the season, but while we still have two super speedway races left in these cars? So a lot has been wondered about that. Do we put more roll cage bars in the vehicle in some way? What is that going to do? Not only for visibility, if you're putting more things inside of the car, potentially in between the driver and the windshield, the driver and other parts of the car where you are, you're already in a limited visibility scenario. But also in terms of, is the driver still going to quickly be able to exit the car? Because that is one of the issues that happened in this incident, is that the roll cage came down so far on the driver's side that had Joey Logano needed to exit the car very quickly, it would have been hard for him to even fit out of the window. So there are questions around all of those things, questions that don't yet have answers, which I think is frustrating a lot of times, at least personally it's frustrating. And it's, it's, I'm not a person who likes to keep questions, especially questions like that, up in the air as we continue to attempt to develop more things. An interesting thing I heard earlier today, as I was listening to another NASCAR uh, NASCAR show, I'm going to see if I can find the quote here in my in my notes, but I will continue to talk as we're discussing this. It here, it's right at the top. There we go. Steve Letart and Jeff Burton were on the same program, which I saw earlier today. Jeff Burton, who I previously referenced, being a person who has, during his career, especially his driving career, pushed for safety advancements. Steve Letarte quoted things, a thing that Jeff Burton has said consistently, and the idea is that you have never obtained safety. You never reach a point where okay, now the cars are completely safe and nothing is going to happen to the drivers. You are still constantly fighting to figure out what is going to keep the cars as safe as possible, the racing, the everything that we have already mentioned. What are those things that we can continue to do? Because as you make changes, things, will, things that change to make th- racing safer and to keep the drivers safer will have some unknown unintended consequences that may shift other aspects. So you are continuing to attempt to push for as much safety as possible, but it is a goal that you're not ever going to be able to fully realize. It is a goal that you continue to have sort of as the carrot in front of you as you're in pursuit of it. So I think I just spent like 15 minutes talking about this and don't know if I actually said anything, but I guess those are that's sort of a, a compl- compilation of the different things that I have heard in regards to this wreck and in regards to driver safety as it pertains to this wreck. As it was, it, it was... I can't imagine being in a rollover accident. It sounds like from the few people who had discussions about this who have been in rollover accidents on the racetrack, it's not a situation that you want to be in and definitely isn't a situation that drivers typically find themselves in, but is more likely at these super speedway tracks than at other tracks. Now, with that said, there are a couple of things that I heard Dale Earnhardt Jr. talking about with things that came out this week. Two things I want to highlight. Neither of which I completely understand. Let's go, I guess, going to For the rest of the time that this podcast continues, I don't know a whole lot about the mechanical aspects of the car and how the car functions. So I will be parroting, basically, repeating things that other people inside of the NASCAR industry have said, and I will be explaining things to the best of my ability. This... or, Or these, I should say, are two of those aspects. One is the spoiler. Dale Earnhardt Jr., I know... It has a thing for being against the spoilers and the way they are in NASCAR, especially right now at the super speedways, he feels like the spoilers are too large. This ties into some other discussions I have heard recently about the way that the car is set up, especially in some cases with the spoiler. It is easier to drive the cars, it is easier to do things, and there are not necessarily as many consequences as maybe have been seen in the past. So I don't know if I have a for example. That would be a for example moment to bring forward an example. But the idea is that the cars are maybe too easy, easier handling, which is good in terms of, I guess, being easier, having having less of your attention occupied with keeping the car driving forward, I guess. But it means that you do things that you maybe wouldn't otherwise do we've seen in this pack racing we saw this past weekend that there are there are times when the cars are bouncing off of each other and you're not seeing cars actually get into wrecks so it's an interesting idea to sort of take a look at how cars handle and even though handling better is the goal maybe actually having the vehicles harder to drive means that you're seeing less of these accidents because you're needing you're not able to maybe do as many things as possible and push boundaries even further than maybe you should be. On top of that, Dale Jr. made a comment. I don't know if he meant to meant to throw this out as sort of an an idea for a change. It could because it was it felt so offhand in the moment. But it got my the wheels and my or the gears in my brain to start turning. These the super speedways are known as uh, restrictor plate races now it's the restrictor plate is the thing that goes on the engine to, as far as i can understand reduce airflow to the engine in order for the engine to produce less power something dale jr said made me start thinking why not just develop engines for super speedway racing that already have less power why why try to put basically a governor something that will limit all of the engines into a normal engine, why not just have a super speedway engine that is developed for everyone to use? These are the specifications for engines that we run at super speedways that already limit the speed without needing to make this sort of adjustment to it. And that seems like an interesting idea, at least to me, that's, I don't know if there is any basis for an attempt to even explore that sort of an idea. But it seems like it would be a thing that you could possibly attempt to develop rather than having this uh, restrictor plate idea that we've seen since, I guess, since like 1988, if the date I heard on that, the introduction of the restrictor plate was correct from what I heard earlier this week. So, those are all sort of driver safety ideas that came out of the Logano crash and the discussions after the fact. And. I, I mean, personally, seeing seeing people die in, in any case is not good. Having people die in the sport while your sport is happening is also not good. But then even to go less severe than that, seeing people get injured is not a good thing either. That's not good for your sport, even though car accidents sort of sort of serve as the general, like a general societal image for when something goes horribly wrong or something that turns into a spectacle in sort of a very drastic fashion. That is sort of the imagery we go to. That's not necessarily actually what you want to be seeing, especially when you are attempting to keep everyone at the track as safe as possible. So anything that NASCAR can continue to do or to research or to develop in order to keep driver safety at the forefront is something that i certainly am a proponent of and for however many people actually listen to this or watch this i will continue to discuss excuse me discuss these sorts of things That said, there was not necessarily sort of this big one accident that we have a tendency to see at super speedways, especially not to the scale of what we saw in the Daytona 500 this past season, when you had almost half the field involved in a very large accident very early in the race. There were accidents throughout this race, especially as we were coming to stage finishes and as we were coming to the end of the race, but you didn't see necessarily the size of accidents that involved a dozen cars at any point in the race. There were there were moments where there were crashes. We had this Logano crash where a number of vehicles were involved. We had a crash coming to the end of stage two in which at least five vehicles were involved who were contenders in the race. And then you had this accident, which you can maybe call the big one as the drivers were going through the last lap and as they were happening and sort of peeling off from the field paring down the field drivers continued to race under green flag conditions but you didn't necessarily see that uh, that major sort of accident so it was interesting along with that the number of cars that were able to continue in the race and continue to be competitive who had been involved in accidents or who had had suffered some sort of damage you saw for example Bubba Wallace be able to come back and win stage two even after Joey Logano's car essentially clipped him while Logano's car was upside down You saw William Byron be able to come back from that accident at the end of stage two to finish second. You saw even Brad Keselowski, your race winner. Keselowski, I had forgotten until I watched rewatched the highlights. He was involved in that Logano accident. He got clipped by Chase Briscoe as they were attempting to avoid Joey Logano's car. So it was interesting to see, especially for how the narrative, I guess, surrounding super speedways comes forward and that aerodynamics are so important at these racetracks. For these vehicles to have as much damage as they did and continue to race as well as they did was an interesting uh, interesting thing for me to notice. So... Other than that, one of my comments from the Daytona 500 in terms of the racing itself was my frustration at the style of racing that we saw at Daytona with just this sort of single file riding around the track for lap after lap after lap. We saw that at least one time that I can remember, maybe a couple times during this race, but I don't think it happened as frequently as happened at Daytona, and I wonder if part of that is because you had more vehicles that were able to continue during the race. No other thoughts, I guess, on that, but that I guess is just another observation. So, as I mentioned previously, going through some of the result aspects to this race, Matt De Benedetto and Bubba Di- Matt De Benedetto, I will attempt to say his name as clearly as possible. Matt De Benedetto and Bubba Wallace are your Warrior stage winners. I believe both of them were their first-time stage win. For sure, Bubba Wallace. Don't remember specifically with Matty D. And then Brad Keselowski was your race winner, leading only one lap, the most important lap, and adding to our list of different drivers to have won a race this season. This is a difficult thing for me to... vocabularize (laughs) what sort of word I'm supposed to use that was we're gonna forget that we ever did that and I guess just leave it on film but (laughs) ever attempted to say a word like that but I'm I'm struggling I guess with how to say Because it's not a first-time winner. The first two drivers of the year were first-time... Or the first two winners of the year were first-time winners. But these aren't first-time winners. But it's the first time they have won this season. Brad Kozlowski adds his name to that list. We now have nine drivers in the last ten races. Or I should say, the first ten races of the season. Who have won a race. So, I didn't remember... Let me go through this note. Because I feel slightly proud about myself about this. Even though I don't necessarily have the... The, the basis to feel as proud as I did. But I went back because I thought I remembered as we were going through, or as I was going through last week's episode... When I was giving sort of the predictions, projections, what to watch for coming into Talladega, I thought I remembered discussing people to watch for. We're going to go ahead and pull up on the screen here and on the audio for those of you listening on the podcast. What I said last week, I think you have some of these, uh, your sort of series regulars up at the top of the field who you may be looking at. Brad Keselowski, I guess. Don't forget, or don't count out Brad Keselowski. He also has some experience winning races at Talladega. So yeah, that's uh that's me talking about drivers to watch for and just so happened to <laughs> predict the, predict one of the people right. Let's let's forget about the fact that I predicted four potential people to watch for. One of the people I chose told you to watch for actually won the race and Brad Keselowski. So pat on the back for me, I guess. High five myself. <laughs> Any anyways, You have Brad Keselowski leading that one lap, being able to take over, and as I said before, involved in that accident during stage one, was able to come back and actually win the race. Something else, I keep having these something else moments, but I'll keep coming back to them. Something else that I saw discussed throughout this past week in in the lead up to Talladega and in the aftermath of Talladega is that there are a lot of drivers who, or former drivers I want to say, who have pointed out that... Super Speedways are not as much of a crapshoot in terms of who is going to win as maybe the narrative would suggest, which when we look at the results from stage two and we look at the results from the end of the race, if I can pull these up here on my computer, let's go ahead as I'm doing doing this to, and pull up the top 10 for those of you watching on YouTube. Brad Keselowski won the race. Brad Keselowski finished second in stage two. Michael McDowell finished third in this race. Michael McDowell finished third in stage two. Michael McDowell and Brad Keselowski are both... Well, Brad Keselowski more so, but Michael McDowell as well. Both have the experience of running well on super speedways. This is not necessarily as much of a crapshoot as maybe we would like to think it is. The people who run well at super speedways tend to consistently run well at super speedways they tend to find a way to survive the race and to be there at the end it's not necessarily always a crapshoot now it certainly can be but it's not necessarily always that way we can point to Joey logano being in an accident as well as being a very good super speedway driver being one of those not does not always consistently happen that way sort of cases but with that said Brad Keselowski, now with his sixth Talladega win, is someone who is able to figure out how to run well at super speedways. Now, I have written in my notes, I believe this is also a thing Brad Keselowski addressed, this, Keselowski and Logano wrecked on the final lap of the Daytona 500. So this race win at a super speedway, the next super speedway on the NASCAR schedule, is not necessarily vindication, but it does, I think, maybe lessen the sting a little bit from what happened at Daytona to be able to come back and have as good of a finish in this case of win as he saw this week so going through the rest of the top 10 I guess let's just run this from top to bottom your first place winner Brad Keselowski second place William Byron third place Michael McDowell fourth place Kevin Harvick fifth place Matt DiBenedetto sixth place Kaz Grala seventh place Tyler Reddick Eighth place Austin Dillon, ninth place Ryan Blaney, and tenth place Cole Custer. Those are your top ten drivers and where they where they finished here in this race. Interestingly enough, I guess Michael McDowell there in that front row car. We have talked about him recently, especially last week when he fell out of the uh, fell out of the playoff standings. Were he to not already have his race win, which we will discuss more when we actually get to the standings discussion. McDowell had a very good race, was one of the few people who had top 10 finishes in the first and second stage in order to accrue a bunch of points, ended up finishing with the second highest point total coming out of this race, as I look down the list to make sure that's actually accurate. Keselowski as your winner had 49 points, McDowell finishing third had 45 points, and then it looks like 42 points for Matt Benedetto after winning stage one, 42 points for Ryan Blaney, and then 41 for William Byron. So those are your top point getters from this past race. So an interesting thing to note, I guess. I do want to touch on the the finish itself, the way that last lap played out, especially since, as I mentioned at the top, Matt De Benedetto was a guy who I was cheering heavily for. I think a lot of the NASCAR garage is cheering for Matt De Benedetto at some point to get a win, because he has been driving for his career, basically, driving for his life for the last at least five years, but probably a little more than that even, before he made his way into the Cup Series. But Matty D is a person who like I just said, a lot of people are looking for to eventually get a win, but maybe doesn't necessarily have the experience level yet to be able to actually finish out these races. Because we've seen Matt Benedetto have a number of different close calls, and now this is the second time in the last, maybe the last two, but certainly the last couple Talladega finishes where Matt Benedetto was leading, I believe, if I remember correctly, on the restart coming to a green-white checkered finish or something of that nature. Matt de Benedetto, after going just just after he crossed the start finish line to start the final lap of the race, he switched lanes from the bottom lane to the top lane because it looked like potentially there was help coming up on top, there was going to be a faster line and he moved his line. I do want to, having listened now to radioactive, say that Matt de Benedetto was following what his spotter told him to do. So I think in that case, Matt Benedetto was doing his job in listening to his spotter and going where he was told to go. That said, now looking back at the way the race finished, I think that team wishes that they had stayed on the bottom in an attempt to have Brad Keselowski push them and have a better chance to finish the race as the winner than what actually happened. The way the racing actually played out there's actually more issues, I guess, in terms of what happened. A couple cars behind Matt, Beden- Matt DeBenedetto. My goodness, Matty D. Then, then maybe was given immediate credit in that uh, in the immediate aftermath of the race on Sunday. Tyler Reddick had a run coming up to the back on the top lane. It was Matt DeBenedetto, followed by Ryan Blaney, followed by a very quickly advancing Tyler Reddick as they were coming. Out of turn two into the back stretch, if I'm remembering correctly, and instead of sticking with Blaney, Tyler Reddick stepped out of line and went to create a third lane up above Blaney and Matty D. And what that ultimately led to was the top lane not having as much speed and not being able to contend for the win. Any of the drivers up there. And at the after the race was over, I saw on Twitter that Tyler Reddick admitted or stated I guess that he understood in the aftermath of the race that his move did not allow for a chance for any of those drivers on top including himself to contend for the win as they were going through that last lap and I had a flashback to last season the last season's Daytona night race because Tyler Reddick made another move not a similar move but made another move which ended up costing him and a large number of other drivers that one causing a wreck at the time I have a link to that in the show notes as well But it's a thing where I think Tyler Reddick is another person who is continuing to learn on the job and learn sort of how to function in these cup races in order to actually contend for wins, especially at these super speedway tracks, which have have the ability to be trickier, especially where you need to be more willing to work with other drivers in order to not only benefit them, but to benefit yourself. So I believe that is everything I wanted to touch on just in terms of that. And then there were a whole lot of other moves made by other drivers, which ended up not working out very well for them, including Eric Jones, who had was running in the top five and ended up wrecking himself and a couple other people as he made a four-wide move that would have been insane had it actually worked, but ended up not working. The other person I want to touch on here, in, specifically in the top uh, top 10 not quite top five we thought it was top five as the race finished but top 10 was i believe it is uh kaz Gralla. there we go kaz Gralla finishing sixth for colleague racing this is another piece of news which we're going to kind of discuss here out of turn i guess but colleague racing is a team which i believe i mentioned previously as one of these teams who may potentially be looking to enter the cup series to Contend to be another new addition in terms of a new team, which can maybe bring in new fresh blood, I guess, as it were, put that in quotation marks. Contend as sort of a new team, new face, which may potentially have the ability to move forward as a contending team in the future. They're running a partial schedule right now. This is the third race they ran this year. This is their second top 10 of the season. It looked in the immediate aftermath of the race like it was going to be a fifth place finish, but NASCAR adjusted the results. So Matt Benedetto and Kaz Grala flipped positions, fifth and sixth between them. And so you had him finishing just outside of the top five. Kaz Grala, that is. College Racing announced... I guess officially, but today as I'm recording, Wednesday the 28th is when I saw this news. College Racing is looking to run a full-time NASCAR Cup Series team next season. At the moment, they are running three full-time Xfinity Series teams and a part-time Cup Series team. I think with some drivers switching in and out, some of those drivers being their Bush Series drivers. A.J. Allmendinger ran at the Daytona Road Course. Uh, Kaz Gralla is not one of the regulars in the Xfinity Series, but he ran this race this year. And it sounds like they're looking to continue to run at super speedways and road courses in particular this year, but are looking to get into NASCAR in the Cup Series full-time next year. So it was an interesting thing to see, sort of an, hopefully an exciting piece of news to be able to bring another team in which can potentially be a competitor. The thing I saw about this right before the show as I was reading a story about this, is that they do not currently own a Cup Series charter. They are looking to potentially purchase a charter if one is able to become available before next season, which, as it is the end of April right now, you do have nine or ten months to actually obtain a charter. But I think at this moment, they ran, I guess, this week as an open open class, open series car, whatever the the actual term is for that, but not a charter member. This is a situation where charters can be beneficial in terms of uh, I don't I don't entirely understand the charter system. It is new since I began watching NASCAR. It used to be that th- spots that were guaranteed in races essentially were to the top 35 drivers and owner points, and then you needed to race your way in behind that. Now NASCAR runs on a system where you purchase a charter and that allows you to be in a race no matter what with your car. So that is what Colleg Racing right now is looking for in the Cup Series and which may or may not be available. So they may or may not be looking to... I guess, run as an open team next season full-time if they are planning on actually making a full-time thing work. So with that in mind, it's interesting to sort of think about where that charter may come from, not only, but who is going to be sort of... It's a zero-sum game. As one team comes in, another team has to come out. This is... This is a... Situation that we need to think about when you think about is a manufacturer going to be able to find more spots for their vehicles to run, especially Toyota, which only currently has five charter teams, I believe, and would probably, hopefully, want to be looking to add more teams, which isn't going to be colleagues since they run Chevy's and they have a technical alliance with Richard Childress Racing. But it's an interesting thing to think about is that you can't just automatically get your way into a NASCAR race. If you don't already have the means to do so, so and on top of that, there is a limit to the number of cars which can race on every any given Sunday, and so since there are thirty six charters and a maximum of forty vehicles that can enter a race, you only have four spots of give and take there. So you're sort of playing a little bit with fire, if it if there becomes a scenario where you have more teams which are able to compete to attempt to make races. This is especially true more so at super speedways right now, I think, than at other tracks. So with all that said, we've gone a long ways here in terms of just uh, discussing what has happened so far. I'm going to touch on a couple other results, vehicles that uh, sort of where they finished in this race before we get to the standings. Uh, Drivers notably to point out, Denny Hamlin, who was having a very good season up to this point, finished 32nd. He is still, as we'll see when we discuss the points standings, leading the pack by a ton in the regular season point standings. But this is by far his worst finish of the season. Another issue we saw with the vehicle, Kurt Busch finishing 35th. I guess we can also add a vehicle issue, Kyle Larson having a technical issue, forgetting to pull some sort of protective piece of metal I guess out of the engine before the race started and he ended up blowing up his engine very early in the race and finishing last but Kurt Busch finishing 35th and then to flip that on its head and sort of some of the better finishes we saw Harrison Burton who we mentioned last week had his first cup series start this past weekend finished 20th he ended up getting a 10th place in stage two and it was thanks to that wreck coming to the end of stage two And Harrison had started eighth on that final restart, but ended up falling all the way back to 20th. So I think that's going to work out to serve as good driving experience, I guess. Harrison Burton is a person who, once we get more into the fall, into the NASCAR silly season, will potentially be looking at as a driver who may be looking for a Cup Series ride next year. But we will discuss that in four or five months once that actually comes to, potentially comes to fruition. Other notable finishes. Stuart Haas Racing was able to get all four of their cars in the top 15. They all survived and all finished pretty well. So, for a team that has had as many issues as they have this season, it is good, I guess, for Stuart Haas to see that sort of a finish. Richard Childress Racing, in addition, had both of their cars in the top 10. They finished seventh and eighth combined. Anthony Alfredo is a rookie running for Front Row Racing and finished 12th in this race, one of his best finishes, if not his best finish in the Cup Series. Front Row is one of these smaller teams that we discussed last week, which has consistently, if they haven't necessarily been able to run well overall, they have consistently been able to run pretty well at super speedways. Of the few race wins they have in the Cup Series, if there are more than the two that they have that I can think of at super speedways, one time being able to finish first and second at Talladega and Michael McDowell being able to win the Daytona 500 earlier this season, they do seem to have a pretty halfway decent super speedway program. So it looks like they're a team to continue to watch as we go to these super speedways throughout the season. Very, very seldomly, but as we do go to the, these different races. So, With all of that, we're going to try to jump rather quickly as we're watching the time here, because I do not want to have this go on for the rest of the night, if possible, as I record. But we're going to take a look at the standings here. We'll pull those up on the screen as my watch buzzes to tell me that I need to get up and move. And I'm going to tell it to be quiet. So the standings, Michael McDowell, we mentioned earlier with his third place finish, was able to move up in the point standings again, if you were to not factor race wins into this. As a reminder, drivers who have race wins typically are automatically guaranteed a spot in the playoffs, but with the way things are running now, it, with, there seems to be every possibility that you could see more than 16 drivers win a race. So Michael McDowell, I think, no matter what, you're going to want to have as as good of a finish as possible in terms of your points finishes, but we see, we saw Michael McDowell be able to move up In terms of just the regular season point standings. And then other than that, let's go ahead and take a look a little more closely at these standings. We'll read these off for those of you listening on the podcast format. And again, we have race winners up at the top and then everyone else following behind that. So now that we have nine race winners, you have Martin Truex Jr. still at the top, Joey Logano in second, William Byron in third, now after his second place finish, being able to more more significantly solidify himself there as I see the point standings. He's only two points behind Joey Logano right now, so that is very good for William Byron. William Byron, I told, I said, here we go getting wordy. <laughs> I, I said we were going to go through this all the way down. We're going to touch on William Byron here for a second. I was surprised to see that William Byron has eight top 10 finishes this year in 10 races. The only other driver who has as many top 10s is Denny Hamlin. Very quietly, William Byron has having a very good season so far in this first these first 10 races that we've seen. So William Byron, I think, is potentially going to be someone to continue to keep an eye on, especially as the regular season goes on. The playoffs are going to be a completely different story, but especially as the regular season goes on. So Byron in third, moving on from there, Ryan Blaney in fourth, Brad Keselowski with his win moves into fifth and puts three Penske cars in the top five. Sixth place, we have Kyle Larson, seventh Christopher Bell, eighth Michael McDowell, and ninth Alex Bowman. McDowell moves himself up in the, well, I guess not technically up in the point standings. He was eighth last week, but he's not the last winner at the the top of the standings. This gets more convoluted than necessary when trying to describe this. Continuing down the list, we'll finish out the top 16, your current playoff spots. Denny Hamlin in 10th, Kevin Harvick 11th, Chase Elliott 12th, Kyle Busch 13th, Austin Dillon 14th, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 15th, and Chris Busher 16th. Should also note here that very close to the cut line 12 points behind Chris Buescher is Matt Benedetto, and one point behind Matt Benedetto is Kurt Busch so things are continuing to remain tight Matt Benedetto is having a better season as it progresses than where he started and has had a pretty decent recovery so far looking at potentially finding his way into the playoffs once we get there 16 races from now at this point so a couple other things to point out here looking at we're going to continue to look at as the season goes on who are drivers who have not yet won who you maybe would expect to win and at this point hamlin harvick elliott and bush your first four drivers after the winners i would expect that all of those drivers have the possibility to contend for wins in the next 16 races i would be more surprised if the all four of them did not win than if all four of them did win it should be noted, I guess, in that same breath, Kyle Busch was not able to win before he was eliminated from the playoffs last season. His first win came after he was eliminated from the playoffs. So you're looking at those four, which would put you at 13 winners. Then behind that, you're looking at who else could potentially win a race. I'm going to stick with my Eric Almirola discussion from last week. I do think even though he was sort of further back in terms of the Stuart Haas race, uh, race finishes this past week at talladega he is still a driver to watch especially on super speedways so even though he's all the way down in 26th place in points i would say Almarola has a chance to win and then in that same breath cole custer won a race last year he has a potential to win tyler reddick a former xfinity series champion is in 22nd right now he could potentially have a chance to win We've talked about Ricky Stenhouse Jr. D- continuing with his sort of consistent finishes. He did have a couple of uh, accident involvements this past week, so didn't finish as well this past week, but still, I think, has a chance to contend for a win somewhere. And then Matt Benedetto, Matt Benedetto did some media this week where he said that he thinks the Wood Brothers' uh, mile-and-a-half speed or mile and a half track packages i guess for their cars are stronger than other aspects of their race team so i think he may be expecting to do better on mile and a half tracks than he has done in the past because of how his team is functioning right now so you may be looking for him he has been pushing so close uh, a few different times to actually winning a race does he have what it takes Bubba Wallace sitting in 20th place right now in the standings. He is essentially running a Joe Gibbs car, even though he doesn't race for Joe Gibbs. Basically, everything that he is racing with right now is top of the line. They have a lot of money in that team right now through both sponsorships and the owner, the principal owner, Michael Jordan. And they're getting, as I just said, a lot of their equipment from Joe Gibbs. So you would expect that he at least has the possibility, whether he has as a driver has the ability right now to do that. I know that, again, discussions in NASCAR media, uh, these coming from Door Bumper Clear with Bubba Wallace's spotter saying these things, they have the push right now with Denny Hamlin as a co-owner to do better, for Bubba to do better, but Bubba is having to adapt to a different, a a different car, completely different make. He switched from Chevy's last year at Petty to now Toyota's and all of those different aspects of changing to a new team, trying to settle into a new team. So you're still looking with those three spots behind Hamlin, Harvick, Elliott, Bush. You're still looking at three drivers who you don't necessarily know where those wins may come from. But I think there is at least a possibility that you could find three different drivers to fill those spots. I don't. I'm still on the fence as to whether it is more or less mathematically possible for 16 drivers to actually win this season, but it's still a thing I'm going to be pushing for and hoping for, and we will continue to discuss in the second half of this podcast as we look forward to Kansas next week. So I'm going to take a look at my notes here and see if we have any other things to touch on. And we do at least have one more thing to touch on. Maybe two, I guess. Both of these things involve Joe Gibbs Racing. Joe Gibbs right now only has two race winners, one of them being Martin Truex Jr., who is the only repeat winner this year, and the other being Christopher Bell, who was a first-time winner this year. Now, in that same breath, we should say that Denny Hamlin is significantly leading the regular season point standings, like by two and a half races or something like that. Denny Hamlin could sit out the next two races and he would still be in the lead in the regular season point standings. So he is still doing well, but I think it's a little bit of a surprise and I don't know if it's a discussion yet, a discussion point yet, I should say, but it's an interesting thing to note that Penske now has all three of their drivers who have won. Hendrick has three of their four drivers who have won. Stuart Haas is having their issues, so I don't think they have any of their drivers who have won yet. And you're looking at Kevin Harvick really being the one who has the best chance of winning. But Gibbs, who has consistently run very well and who has, at different points, put multiple drivers into the championship four, you're looking at them and sort of wondering, when is the point when they're going to actually be able to win a race? So... Even after this bad finish this last week, Camlin again, is still leading the point total by a lot. Still, I would expect him to have a very good chance to uh, contend for wins this season. But, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting thing to watch, I guess, as we move forward through the season. So, I know this segment of the podcast has been very long, longer than expected. I have a tendency to become very verbose when I when i actually do get rolling so we're going to go ahead and put our break in at this point in the podcast when we come back we're going to have a brief discussion about some things that came out of the xfinity series this past weekend look and see if we have any other notes to make about any other news that may have happened and then we are going to continue forward into our kansas preview the looking forward to next weekend's race and that is all coming up here after the break on lapping the field Hey everyone, this is the point in most podcasts where you would maybe expect to hear an ad read, a Patreon plug, or something of that nature. While that may be something that ends up being integrated into this podcast in the future, I'm more concerned at the moment with getting this podcast up and running. So, no ads, no Patreon, but if you do want to find out more about this podcast or any other project I'm involved in, head over to ericbeckmedia.com. That's ericbeckmedia, all one word.com. Now back to the show. All right, and we are back here after the break on Lapping the Field. Got myself a little bit of water as we took that break, but I think I may end up needing some more here as we continue through this, getting that uh, dry mouth issues here. So we can maybe just restart and restart this segment of the podcast, but we're not going to do that because this is who I am as a person, apparently. <laughs> Anyways... Anyways, we are discussing, as I said, going into the break, we're touching on the Xfinity Series here in this past weekend, and what I t- want to touch on more specifically is just one thing, and that is sort of the very warm extension of congratulations to Jeb Burton for winning his first career Xfinity Series race. The Burton family has a very special place in my heart. I get heart, I should say. I guess I can uh, pull my my Jeff Burton little mini me cardboard cardboard cutout here again for those of you watching on the on the youtube stream i guess i will have him uh have him come very close to the screen there there he is this is jeff burton from 2002 pull out my uh my jeb burton my uh it's hard here seeing seeing myself on the screen here but got the little ls tractor car that he ran for junior motorsports part-time mm-hmm. last season if i remember correctly Jeff Burton is, when I got into NASCAR, into watching NASCAR as a sport in 1999, Jeff Burton was my driver, and I watched him and followed him as closely as was possible, I think, for me as a person until his retirement, uh, which sort of, kind of sort of ended in a fizzly sort of, fizzle out sort of way. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. With his win, Jeb Burton now is the fourth different Burton to win in the Xfinity Series, which apparently is the first time it's ever happened that a fourth member of a, excuse me, fourth member of a family has been able to win a race in a premier series. So, it's a very interesting thing to see and I know that inside of the industry, inside of the NASCAR industry, there was a lot of congratulations coming from a lot of different drivers to Jeb Burton because Jeb Burton is a driver who they have seen who is finally, it looks like, catching a break and being able to find a consistent ride with a good team, albeit at the Xfinity Series level, but that consistent ride is a thing that he has not been able to find so far. Jeb is has jumped from the Truck Series to the Xfinity to the Cup. He's gone back and forth. He had a full-time Cup Series ride for a season, but it was with a very poorly funded team, and it was not a good season for him. And so it looked like potentially Jeb Burton was not going to be able to find a ride for himself, at least not on a full-time sort of scale. He was running, as I said earlier, part-time for junior motorsports, at least last season, I think for at least the last two seasons, and finally was able to find his way to colleague racing into a full-time ride with sponsorship coming from a couple of different places, especially agriculturally focused sponsorships because that is sort of the Ward, the Ward-Burton side of the Burton family. That's one of the aspects that they have focused on when they are outside of racing. So, very cool to see Jeb get his first win. I've been cheering for the Burton family, I guess as a whole, but more so with the second generations of second generation that is of Burtons coming in with Harrison and Jeb. So, that is when you see a Burton focus, a Burton bias on this podcast, it is because Jeff Burton was my guy for a very extended period of time. And even still as a uh, as a broadcaster, Jeff Burton, in my opinion, is the best broadcaster that there is in NASCAR because he is Jeff Burton. And who else would you want to see on your screen as I slowly, slowly bring him across the screen here? So <laughs> all that to say, a uh, very big set of congratulations going to Jeb Burton. Hopefully he is able to continue with his uh, with his winning ways. It sounds like there are expectations that he is going to have the ability to continue to run well this season He is running, in terms of the Xfinity Series standings points, he now has essentially punched his ticket into the playoffs, and is going to be looking to potentially, potentially, I'll say potentially, contend for uh, at least sniffing at the chance to win a championship. I guess I don't know for sure that he will actually be contending for the championship, But there is potentially, again, potentially, a chance for a Burton rivalry to develop inside of the Xfinity series, or at the very least for two different Burtons to do very well in the Xfinity series, with Jeb and Harrison running full-time down there. So, that was our brief look at the Xfinity series, brief look at the Burton family. One last piece of information here we're going to touch on before we go to our Kansas preview. There is still, I am seeing, especially today before I started recording, there is a little bit of buzz still percolating inside of the NASCAR world about the potential for NASCAR to run a street course, road course type event at some point in the future. It sounds like there is a push now, not just from this, uh, the announcement of the iRacing event that's going to be happening on a virtual Chicago racetrack street track but potentially for this to actually become a thing with a push from people inside of the industry in high levels of power i know roger penske as someone who is an owner of a different series uh, penske owns the indycar series that is a thing i think that he is now potentially pushing for inside of nascar as well since indycar already runs street series or street courses i should say and did so last weekend at st petersburg Also, briefly, your Jimmy Johnson update finished five laps down 22nd in the last weekend's race in IndyCar. It'll be interesting to see if he's able to finish on the lead lap this season at all. That's your IndyCar Jimmy Johnson update. (laughs) So back to the street course idea. I still think it would be an interesting idea. I still, as we discussed last week, am interested in seeing sort of a rotation of tracks if you're able to bring different tracks into the circuit at different points in time and be able to run different places, different years. So I'm... I continue to be all for a street course, and it looks like there is potentially the possibility of continuing discussions about NASCAR exploring that idea in the future. So, now having discussed at length the Talladega results for the Cup Series, having discussed a couple other smaller pieces of news, we move on to our Kansas preview. And once again, we have now our second race on cable this year. Hooray! Not going to be able, those of us who don't have cable, to watch the race as it airs on... Well, now I was about to say on Saturday, but I guess I don't know if that's true. Either Saturday or Sunday, at some point this weekend, if I were more well-prepared, I had the the Cup Series uh, schedule open earlier. I know where to find it faster on my phone, so I will continue to vamp as we pull up the series schedule to see if it happens on Saturday or Sunday this weekend. But it is at Kansas. This is, once again, one of your mile-and-a-half tracks, one of your quote-unquote cookie-cutter tracks. This is the first, if I if I can say this this way, there are two different, I guess, sorts of styles of these mile-and-a-half cookie-cutter tracks. This is the first of this style, if I remember correctly, that NASCAR is going to be traveling to this weekend kansas chicagoland and okay not entirely true las vegas was is the same sort of style so we were at las vegas already earlier this year so this will be the second time that we're going to this sort of shape of cookie cutter trek the other style as i continue to vamp here is the texas charlotte and atlanta sort of style where there is a trioval, but it is sort of edged off. It's not sort of a true rounded trioval up at the top there. So looking at the schedule here, this race is happening on May 2nd, which is indeed Sunday. So it is a Sunday race at Kansas. It should be a day race at Kansas. And you're seeing that if you have cable on FS1 or if you don't have cable, as always, NASCAR races do end up getting put up on YouTube in their entirety, so you will be able to as a race fan, to watch the race there, if you are interested in that. Now, as has been the case in the past couple uh, past couple episodes, save for the Talladega episode, we're going to look at some trends here, trying to figure out who might have the best chance at sort of pushing for a victory here. I don't know what the issue is, but sometimes I'm able to find the last ten race result averages. Sometimes I'm able to find them for previous races. So for example, this week, what I was able to find on the Motor Racing Network website was the average of the last 10 finishes if it were the middle of last season, not after they actually went the second time to Kansas last year. So I didn't end up doing the math on all of these. We're going to read off some of what the MRN list has and some of the math that I've already done to see what... Uh, which drivers may actually have a chance here of winning especially as we continue to focus on this drivers who have not yet won this season who might have a chance at winning as i take another drink of water Uh, more more notifying those of you listening in podcast format to those of you who have continued to stick around thank you for sticking around here being so focused on nascar this year are listening to me talk about it so Looking at this list that the Motor Racing Network has on here, Kevin Harvick is your best average finish driver of this group of drivers, averaging as of the middle of last season a 6.9 average finish in the last 10 races. If you change out where he finished in the fall for the race that happened in 2015, which is the last race listed on MRN. His number actually drops from 6.9 to an average of 5.5, which is a full position better than if you were to keep that 2015 number on there. So, if you're looking for a driver who has not yet won this season, look at Kevin Harvick as being a potential uh, front runner, I guess, for actually winning this race. Now, the next person on the MRN list is Cole Custer, who, as of the list, only had one finish at the track, and it was 7th. So you're going to have a pretty good average finish if your only finish at the track was 7th. Now, figuring in his uh, second race in 2020, when he finished 14th, his average finish drops to 10.5, and you have a much smaller sample size, so I think it's difficult to say that Cole Custer is for sure going to be someone to potentially contend, especially considering the issues that the Stuart Haas racing team has been having as a whole so far. So uh, potentially someone to keep an eye on, but not necessarily. Following Cole Custer, though, we have Martin Truex Jr. Once again, you're seeing him up towards the top of this list. 7.7 according to MRN. If you include the include the last race of last season, it drops to 6.2. So once again, this time a position and a half better than what he was going into last last fall's kansas race so truex again someone to watch for truex someone who is already your sole repeat winner of the season be watching for him i guess to be now again repeating again as a winner it will be interesting to see as we continue to go through the season whether someone is actually able to start racking up wins to actually fully uh, Put themselves, place themselves into the front runner position, like we have seen from a couple of different drivers in the past few seasons. Now, we can say in the same breath that that does not necessarily mean that you will be the best top contender for a championship or will be coming out with a championship the last person I think to win the most races in the season and win the championship was true X back in 2017, but I'm pretty sure since then with, if I can do this off the top of my head, Logano Bush and Kyle Bush, that is, and chase Elliott winning the last three championships in NASCAR. I do not believe that they had the most race wins. And two of those three Logano and Elliott specifically came on strongest at the end of the season, Kyle Bush and his se- his championship season had a very good front half of the season struggled throughout the end of the season until he won the last race at homestead so potentially even though you do well at this current moment does not necessarily translate into winning the championship but it will be interesting to see if something like that does happen you see someone take more of a lead in the regular season Continuing down the list, Kyle Busch has an average finish of 8.2, whether you include 2015 or you include the second race in 2020. He finished fifth in both those races, so his average doesn't change. Kurt Busch, the next driver on the list, at 8.9 for the last 10 until you switch out the races, and then he actually drops to 12.1. Again, this is getting nerdy. I understand that as I am saying these things, but Kurt Busch had a DNF. Did not finish the race last fall, so his punish- average finishing position suffers significantly. Other drivers, will just flip through this, the next few drivers down the list. Brad Keselowski, you're looking at roughly an 11th place finish average. Chase Elliott, same deal. Uh, Alex Bowman on this list. Alex Bowman is not having necessarily the best season. He does now have a win, so he is more secure in his potential at actually getting into the playoffs depending on whether we actually have more than 16 race winners or not. But Bowman, it looks like, has locked his position in. Alex Bowman has not run 10 races yet at Kansas in a cup car. So depending on how you want to count things, he had a gap there in the middle. So if you were to cut off his finish in 2015, his position finish is much better. If you include that in his last 10 season, his position is worst. Worse, I should say. But in either case, you're looking at roughly an 8th to 11th place average finish. So Bowman, again, someone to look for. Other than that, if you're looking at drivers who have won... Uh, Joey Logano is the other person on this list. I had to read my note here. Because the interesting piece about this is, like Kyle Busch, Joey Logano's average finish doesn't change because even though he won... The last, season, or the last race last season, he also won back in 2015, so his average position doesn't change because it was the same finish in both of those races. So, looking at the drivers in the last 10 races who have won at Kansas so far, the list is sort of the who's who of NASCAR drivers right now. Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex Jr., Kyle Busch, Brad Keselowski, Chase Elliott, Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, of those seven drivers four of them are the drivers who we said have not yet won and who you would expect to see win as the season moves on so more than half of the drivers who have won at kansas in the last 10 races don't yet have a win those being harvick kyle bush chase elliott denny hamlin so I think you can say with a little more certainty that you're looking at more specific drivers to potentially be contending here. So look for sure at those. I I mean, seven is a large number of drivers when you only have a 40 driver field, but look for sure at those seven of the ones who have not yet won. I guess look at Kevin Harvick, even though that team has not necessarily had the best of finishes harvick still has seven top 10 finishes even with the struggles that stewart haas has had so potentially be watching harvick i would say watch truex and i guess watching hamlin and Logano is a thing that is always going to happen especially as this season continues so that i believe is going to be the end of our discussion a final note here before we completely sign off a piece of forewarning i guess The Darlington race in the fall has typically been a throwback paint scheme race. So the paint scheme that you actually see on the car is sort of a tribute to cars from seasons past, whether they be, I guess, in any series at all. The throwback paint scheme race has changed from the fall to the spring this year, and that's happening in two races. So this coming weekend is Kansas. The following weekend is Darlington. I would like to be able to review paint schemes because paint schemes are one of my favorite things in NASCAR, but that is not really something that is the best of possibilities for an audio format in a podcast. Trying to describe paint scheme colors doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially when I have heard it attempted to be done on other podcasts. So I do want to have that, but I am looking at the that probably being an exclusively youtube formatted piece of media so i will be looking at doing a darlington throwback paint scheme review before the darlington race in now a week and a half or so but that will be pretty much strictly stuck with the youtube format of this podcast series on top of that My YouTube channel for this podcast does not have some fancy schmancy uh, slug, I guess is the technical term for for the YouTube profile. You can't just type in youtube.com slash lapping the field. That's not going to take you anywhere. It's just a series of letters and numbers. So to actually find that, you can either find the lapping the field podcast on YouTube by searching for it in the search bar. Or, as always, I'm going to have links to that in show notes, so you should be able to find that in your podcast players. If you're watching this on YouTube, you should be able to find it rather easily on YouTube. So, with that said, this has been Lapping the Field once again for another week, coming at you on your podcast players. Those of you listening on podcast form, thank you for listening. Those of you watching on YouTube, thank you for watching on this super high-quality potato cam camera. My name is Eric Beck. I have been your host. That was a poor way to end this. (laughs) I've got to work on this sign-off still. My name's Eric Beck. This has been Lapping the Field. (laughs)